Hi everyone, it's Joakim Makren, your host of the Elite Game Developers Podcast, a podcast about the entrepreneurs and investors who are building the games companies of the future. Today I'm talking with Daniel Hasselberg, the co-founder and CEO of Mag Interactive, a mobile games company based out of Stockholm, Sweden. I met Daniel several years ago when they had just launched their hit word game, Russell. Since then, the company has IPO'd and has been growing with several more office locations and a lot of games launched. We'll now discuss the learnings from that journey with Daniel himself. Hi, Daniel. Welcome to the show. Hey, Joachim. Good to be here. Good. Great to have you. We've been talking about this for a while and finally it made it happen. Yeah, I think we emailed about this quite a while before you even started it. So yeah. good to make it happen. Yes, it is. Hostings in Stockholm. Oh, it's good. I mean, it seems like we maybe don't even have to have a winter this year. I kind of appreciate that. But it's just, Same here. <laughs> some people in the office, they like go up north to get some snow, but I, I kind of enjoy having more of a European-style winter. Yeah. As long as we have sun, I think that's yeah. been a main benefit. But hey, let's kick it off with the question of start talking about like your career in tech in the early days and how you founded MAG. Yeah, so I guess it's, uh, as for many entrepreneurs, it's kind of a winding road. I was actually into kind of nuclear physics and, and that kind of stuff in school. So I, I thought I would go to CERN maybe. But then I ended up doing my thesis project in an internet lab, partly owned by Ericsson. So that was in 97 or so. I had a lot of fun there for a couple of years, built kind of mobile internet applications, basically to show Ericsson what they could do when kind of the internet would be more mobile and more kind of available to everyone. But then after a couple of years, it just decided to shut down the company, which I think was a bit of a shock when you're kind of fresh out of school and pretty naive. You don't understand that companies need to make money to survive. Mm. Um, but I was lucky. There was another kind of lab project in the same building. So they reached out to me the same day that they talked about closing my company and asked if I wanted to join a project. That was kind of my way to entrepreneurship because I'd ended up that project. We started a, an entire company around their product later the same year. So that was really kind of mobile tech oriented, nothing to do with gaming. We had Ericsson as, as kind of part owners in the company. So we wanted to build something to make it easy to, to kind of access information from the real world with your phone. So the idea was to, you would be able to point your phone to anything around you and it would just automatically tell you what's the cheapest price I can buy this online or kind of information about whatever you pointed the device towards. So it's very, very tech-focused. And this was kind of 99 or 2000. So anything was possible, I think, mm. in the, kind of that internet boom period. So the company was actually acquired for 50 million US dollars after 18 months and no revenues. <laughs> so that <laughs> kind of tells you something about that era, I guess. Yeah. Um, so that was a kind of crazy ride. And... Um, I think a couple of years after the acquisition, we were left basically with nothing. All the tech and IP was transferred to, to the US where the company that acquired us came from. And we got a really hard lesson in what preferred shares mean. Oh, no. 
<laughs> so, <laughs> that was the 90s, so it must have been really like not so founder friendly days. <laughs> not very much. So, I mean, we actually went away with nothing, completely zero. Oh, no. Even though you were part of starting a company, someone acquired for $50 million. Uh, so, that's a hard lesson, I guess. But nowadays, as you say, I think it's usually much more founder friendly. And I also think people speak to each other about what terms should look like and what preferred shares actually are and how that can completely remove all the potential for you if you're not careful. So, I mean, you're, you're into advising companies. So I think that's mm. one part you talk about, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, that's in a sense like the terms have turned into so much more founder-friendly, like cap table, protective, yeah. uh, how people like really look after that the founder has motivation. And, you know, mm. it's the first company and then they will have another company and another company. And you want to follow the best founders and not kind of screw them over in the first place. Yeah, exactly. That's a good point. It's kind of investors have become much more long-term. Mm. Well, I think they were also kind of new to this, uh, didn't really get it, uh, not the internet thing and definitely not kind of how to think about founders and entrepreneurs and that they might end up starting more companies down the road. Yeah, true. Then you founded Mag or was there kind of like a... There was another company in between as well. So we, wow. we started uh, another company in 2003. So basically me and a couple of the founders of the first company, we wanted to keep on working together. So we started a company in the music download space. So we built some tech that kind of enabled paper download DRM protected music. So I think it was the first competition to iTunes in the Nordics. We built kind of a white label solution. So TV channels and newspapers, it worked with MTV Nordics and so on. So they could sell music to their communities online, both PC and mobile. We ran that for five years. and then. I think the last year or the last couple of years, we became like beta testers of Spotify. And <laughs> I was like, wow, oh. that was slightly better than our solution. <laughs> so, <laughs> you can see it coming in a way. But I mean, the, the, our biggest client worked with the record labels to kind of clear rights for the music. And they asked them to get streaming rights, but they just refused and said no. We feel uncomfortable if we don't have this kind of DRM scheme where you download first and they can share on X couple of devices and so on. So even though they could also see that this is the future, they weren't allowed to build that because the record labels said no. And I think if you read the story about Spotify, you know that they were much more kind of, uh, I don't know if aggressive is it's the right word, but more, they just went for it. So they did the streaming service without permission but in closed beta until they could prove that this is obviously the way to go. Yeah. And then they won. And I think it's probably one of the best companies built in the Nordics ever. I'm really happy that that's how it ended up. Yeah. But uh, for us, I think that was kind of the end of it. So our biggest uh, client basically went out of business and then we had no business. Mm. Then we started MAG in 2010. I think like the last couple of years before we started MAG, a couple of the guys on the team had started to do kind of small games for the App Store, like physics-based puzzles and some kids' memory game and so on. And we just saw that it was really fun. And also, it felt like a real opportunity. 
back in those days. Like every time you did an update, you actually made it to the front page of the App Store mm. and made some money. So I think that was kind of pretty pragmatic. Like this is probably a place where we could build our next company, just thanks to the App Store being there. Mm. Then the road to find Russell, what mm. was that like? I mean, it was pretty, again, kind of pragmatic approach. Like we were just six of us and several was working on kind of work for higher projects. So the core team around Russell was actually four people. So like, what can we do in a matter of months that can actually be good and competitive? So we both looked at categories of games. And then also we saw an opportunity that for in the word game space, it seemed like the only really big player that was Zynga were completely focused on the US. Mm. We thought if we could do a word game, but localized to all these kind of tiny European languages, maybe that's kind of a blue ocean. Mm. Yeah, it turned out that was right. So I think a combination of, of a well-made game, I think we did a good job on the product side, but the timing was just perfect. Mm. I think we got a million downloads in three weeks after launch without marketing. That's just incredible. And... We're the number one app on the Swedish App Store for more than a month. So it became something of a phenomenon, I think, in the Swedish market at least. Yeah. Going from there, you guys have grown the company and mm. uh, did an IPO recently a few years ago. I was really interested in covering kind of like this building a games company topics with you. So yeah. for instance, like, You've been building this now for 10 years, the company. Like, There's the book from Jim Collins, who's the author of Good to Great, who talks about this getting the right people on the bus. You found Russell and it started growing. How did you know what people you then needed to have on the bus? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I mean, the, uh, I like that metaphor of the bus. And like, if you have the right people on the bus, you can change direction. Still, people will be on the bus with you. and, and do something good together. I've been really comfortable with having my co-founders, kind of Johan and Kai, that are really strong on product and tech. And I'm the more kind of outward-looking business and marketing-focused person in the team. But I, the, the three of us have been a really good combination, I think. And then, to be honest, in the early days, I mean, we're just looking for developers so we could build more games. Mm. And not very thoughtful in like, this is exactly the kind of drivers you want people to have or this is a perfect profile is more we actually made money with the first game we thought okay we have the resources to have more going on and build for the future then i think it's really matured over the last five six years like okay this is our culture this is what we're looking for this is what we're definitely not looking for and that's i think matured over time but the beginning was pretty scrappy just get really good developers in so we can build quality products and that was basically it. How big is the team now? We're about 80 people right now. So 60 in Stockholm and 20 in Brighton in the UK. Yeah. Thinking about this kind of mode there of the run, driving the bus, you have Russell as the backbone success for the company. Mm. Was it always something that you thought that, okay, we, we're going to put a lot of effort into maintaining our main title and then also put focus on finding new games like building a portfolio how did you find the focus there for like new versus like maintenance or upkeeping and having them as a live service 
I mean, I think the when we got that initial boost, we thought it would be over in a, in a matter of weeks or months. Yeah, and we need quickly to get on to the next thing. And then I think when we again like organically just grew into more more markets during the same year, we figured out okay, this is more long term than we thought. But still, we felt I think it was also the how everyone in the business looked at it back then. Like the only way to grow is to launch new games. And I talked to a lot of other CEOs about how they thought back in 2013, 14, even 15. And there was a lot of focus on building the next game and not really taking good care of your original successful title. And many of us think I've gone back over the last three, four years and actually refocused on that great game where you still have tons of users and realized we can keep on growing that. So mm. I think that's been a, an evolution, maybe in general in the business and definitely for us as a company. There's a lot of growth to be had in your core games and shouldn't stress out new games just for the sake of launching games. Yeah, what is actually an old game? Like it's becoming an old game. So, you know, we need to shift focus. Is there a term like that even in mobile? I don't think there should be. Russell is turning eight years now and it's growing now. It's bigger than last year. And like better ARP DAO, more revenues, super steady audience. And uh, if you look at other public companies like Zynga, for example, I think they reported like Virtual Friends is, had its best year yet last year and it's 10 years old. Mm. So this is probably not a, any really good motivation for saying this game is now old. Yeah. Uh, you should look at the kind of number of active players and think about that as a potential. Mm. Then I think what's been the difference for us is between older games and newer games is that our newer games have much better KPIs and there are games that we are able to in a much, uh, like we can really drive marketing with good ROI for these new games, whereas the older games have weaker average monetization. So it's more optimizing on the existing base, whereas it's been harder to kind of market those games. That's the difference you have, kind of the steady and growing cash cows, but they have some kind of limit probably because you're optimizing on an existing base. But we see more the kind of growing user base in the new games. Mm. Is that the, the kind of like the base for building a game that you then feel confident that you can, you can start scaling, you can put a lot of user acquisition behind it? Yeah, exactly. When we are kind of in soft launch or even before soft launch, we're really trying to make sure we have that equation working out for us uh, before starting to kind of expand and commit resources for a longer period of time to see that we do have kind of a LTV CPI equation that adds up and also kind of looking at previous games, trying to benchmark and see how much better this is in terms of ROI potential than the previous games. So you know if it's worth putting it out on the market or if you should just double down what you already have live. And like you mentioned, Zynga there, you're not alone in the category. So that's mm-hmm. kind of interesting to think about, like how do you keep up with the trends and kind of like keep yourself there at a really good position in that category? What is the research aspect and the learnings aspect that you put into the work? We use a few of the common tools, I guess, like 
Appani and Game Refinery and so on to kind of really to understand benchmark and see what everyone else is up to. Of course, play a lot of games. So I think it's mostly that you try to figure out what everyone else is doing and if that actually works out for them. Because of course, a lot of companies are doing things that don't make sense. So it's uh, doing as much benchmarking as, as you possibly can to kind of be informed when you think about what's the next thing you should be doing. But I think what's interesting in free-to-play is also that it's probably equal amount of competition in the user acquisition space. So it's also figuring out what your competition is doing in terms of ad creatives and which channels they're marketing in and so on to see if you're competitive on the user acquisition side and what trends are there because they're moving even quicker than the game trends, I think. Have you guys explored already the fake uh, kind of like the ad which doesn't depict the game. (laughs) (laughs) That's the whole topic in user acquisition. (laughs) (laughs) I I want to find somebody who can point out that it works. Like this is is the difference (laughs) for showing actual (laughs) gameplay versus torturing a character or something. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Not mentioning any specific games companies here. (laughs) No, definitely not. (laughs) Yeah, when I... You talk to people that claim that they do have a kind of high return on ad spend, even though the funnel must be completely broken when you mm. get people onto the App Store and it's actually a different game. But we've done a few tests of that as well, just to see kind of how does it work. But it's nothing that we've been scaling. And to be honest, you're kind of happy to see that the more honest ad creatives work better in terms of ROI, because that's how you want to present your product. A bit like a shame if you can't actually show what the game is about. But uh, what we've seen is that it's kind of playing with the emotions that you think are relevant to what the game is about could be really good in ad creatives. So if you think that this game should be about competition or it should be about socializing, you can really emphasize that in the ad creative, especially if you have live action videos. You can something fun can happen that is kind of similar to the feeling you have in the game, but then you should also show some gameplay so that they understand what they're getting themselves into, I guess. But I think that emotional hook is really important to get through the noise. That is cool, yeah. Let's go talk a bit about back about the founder times and those kind Mm -hmm. of like being a founder. Like I spend a lot of time talking with first-time founders who are just figuring things out. What do you think is the best way to becoming a successful founder in gaming? Yeah, I think you need to be really curious. When I think back to when we started MAG, there was, of course, everyone was new to -to free-to-play, both us and the industry. And I thought back in those days, games, conferences, for example, were actually really interesting. People were sharing real learnings. And uh, I think you had Florian on in a previous... Yeah. Podcast, and I, I remember listening to him. He did a talk at GDC about Jelly Splash, for example. Yeah, that was kind of was really interesting stuff they had learned. And back in those days, 2012, 13, 14, with that, I think that was a great way to kind of get knowledge. Mm. If you start a company now, you're probably better off reading blog posts and figuring out if you have a network so you can speak to real people. I think the mm. learning through conferences is much harder nowadays because it's more about self-promotion and sales and not so much about actually sharing learnings. That's how I see it. But uh, 
I think you need to read a lot and do your own analysis and don't trust what you read in a very kind of high level blog post. You need to go down and see, do I come to the same conclusion when I really start to think about this? I think it's also good to outsource things you don't know until you know it and then bring it in-house. For example, like user acquisition, I think it's really hard to hire for that early and maybe they will also not have anything to do while you're building the game. So I think that's really good to outsource, but I do think it's a core competency for games companies to have. I think the long-term plan needs to be that you want to understand how that truly works and probably in-source over time. Yeah, and then this kind of like the moment when you start scaling through hiring people and thinking about fundraising. What did you learn in those early days in fundraising when you were, let's not go back to the first company because <laughs> we already heard what happened <laughs> yeah, there exactly. with the investors. <laughs> some but things then, to watch out for there. <laughs> yeah. Then you, you did some fundraising for Mac as well. So what were the big learnings there for, for and takeaways? What we brought with us from the first company was like to be less naive and more really thinking about, is this on our terms? So actually both company two and three, we bootstrapped just to make sure we did not rely on external capital. And if we do it, we will do it on our terms and really be able to be take time and be picky on who gets to get on the cap table and, and why and so on. Right. So we did... Uh, we did get an investor, a couple of investors on board in 2013 or 14, 13 maybe. But that was actually secondary. So we didn't raise money. But we, I thought it was really good for the company to get some external investors just to make us think less as a family-owned business and more like a kind of professional long-term trying to create value and so on. So I think that was really good for us to kind of mature a bit. Uh, as a company, good for me as a CEO to have kind of a real board mm. that could challenge you a bit. And uh, so, so I think it could be really good if you get it right. But we did uh, kind of back checking on the investors and asked for references both from companies that it did well, but also that did not do well in the portfolio. So I can actually talk to them and ask how do they behave in bad times. Mm. And also we met over probably six months' time, multiple times, and uh, also asked for... I let the VC analyze our business. And mm. like, what does it look to you? And then you can get an understanding. Do they really understand what we are doing here? Because if they do, it's much bigger chance you actually will be aligned and have really valuable conversations in the boardroom. So that could be maybe one trick to ask for their kind of deep analysis of the business. That is super interesting because then you basically make them sit in your like chair and think about yeah. like what is the plan? How do we grow mm. the company? Yeah. Yeah. Did you know these expectations of from a VC? How had you actually prepared yourself to know what you want to go after with the VCs? When we did like the, the old Russell game when we launched it, we I think after eight, nine months or something, we broke through in the US. We were pretty big in the US. We're number one there for maybe a month. This was just maybe six months after uh, Draw Something, the OMG Pop game. Yeah. That was acquired really early by Zynga for a lot of money. So I think that 
made a bunch of US VCs reach out to us because they thought maybe this is the next one. But then we said no to everyone because we had we still felt a bit burned from previous experience. Mm. But when it kept happening like a bunch of times, then we started thinking, okay, should we get anyone on board? And in that that case, why? And I think there was a lot of focus on making sure getting someone on board would not screw up the company or make us into something we didn't want to be yeah. rather than we need value X, Y, and Z from the investor. It's more like, let's make sure they don't break anything. Mm. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> good starting point. But yeah, that's, you learn these from experiences, really. That's the case. Mm. That If you haven't been in the situation where things didn't go well, it's hard to relate to somebody else's situation. But that's yeah, and I mean, it's yeah. usually a very imbalanced situation because these investors meet 100 companies every year and you maybe start a company once or twice. Mm. So they are so much more confident going into these meetings if you're not well prepared because they have the experience, way more experience than you have in talking about exactly this. So I think it could be really good to have someone around you that's been through it before. Like I know you are, you're advising some companies now I think it would be great for small companies to have someone they can just call up and say, what should we think about? Where do we need to be careful? What should we look for? Because how would you know if you've never done it? So I think advisors can be really valuable at those points in time. Yeah. And in a sense that where you raise the money from, it's oftentimes in, in the early stages, if you're not in a situation where you can pick your investors, you might be, you know, just wanting to raise the money without thinking about consequences. Mm. Uh, But yeah, it is a difficult balance there. Yeah, exactly. If you need the money to survive, then I guess getting money is better than not getting money, Mm. (laughs) no matter the source. (laughs) uh... (laughs) From going from there, you guys did the IPO. Was Was there like a discussion about like staying private versus going public? doing trade sale, doing another secondary, mm. raising a bigger VC round, hundreds of millions, bringing mm. like, what was the kind of like discussion there? Yeah, I think like probably all of those things were on the table at some point in time. We did have a lot of interest from uh, kind of strategic buyers for a while. That question was, uh, was something we looked at for a while. And that makes you think like if you would sell who would you sell to? Like you need to then feel that you end up with people, with people you trust that, and that value your values. And also, do you really feel ready to part with what you created in a way? Yeah. And I think we probably weren't really ready for that. Mm-hmm. So then the next question is, okay, then how do you get an exit for the investors in the company? And I think to, to I, IPO was appealing in the sense that they could then get their exit if they wanted to, and we could keep on running the company. And uh, I think, yeah, I mean, it's, as you know, it's a bit special in the Nordics that you can take fairly small companies public. Mm-hmm. And there's also a bunch of people you can talk to that have already done it. I uh, got meetings with a couple of Swedish uh, CEOs that had taken their companies public before and just asked them, like, very hands-on, how did you do it? What changed? Do you have any regrets? That was pretty, uh, just, made me more comfortable that this is something we can actually do. It's not, it doesn't change everything about your company and so on, but you need to be careful with some things. 
one thing we decided on was to make sure that we won't be wouldn't have to go and raise money in the market again. Because then you will start obsessing about the share price because raising money when the share price is low is really painful. So we said, okay, if we do it, we're going to do it in a way so we know that we can continue to run the company in same kind of very long-term thinking way with doing quality things in a way we believe in doing it. So I'm really happy we planned for that to make sure we had a stable enough product portfolio before going live and also raising enough money to make sure we don't have to raise money again and so on. And I think that's worked mm. for us. Yeah, the, thinking about like getting, creating the liquidity for the owners is definitely a very, like it doesn't happen as easily uh, when uh, you do, like you need to wait for the secondary, maybe in, you know, mm. a year, two years, five years. But like, yeah. that's a definite benefit of being a public company. But are there... Mm kind of like other non-obvious benefits of being listed? Yeah, I mean, I think the one thing is, of course, you, you need to have good order in your finances and so on. Every company should have that. But at least you do have to have that. And you also get regular checkpoints. So every quarter, you actually have a really good look into how, how everything works. And it's also, I mean, we, even before we went public, we had a very kind of transparent approach to finances and so on with with all people in the staff sending weekly reports with revenues and and so on but this makes for a really good report for everyone who would be interested both in joining the company that hasn't joined yet but also for kind of current staff like this is how we're doing right now and also i think it's been good for getting high caliber board members that want the experience of being on a public company board mm. so you can also become interesting from several perspectives for a board member, for example. And then, I mean, I thought personally it was really exciting. It's a pretty cozy environment running a profitable private games company. And if you've done that for a number of years, you also maybe start looking for a challenge. Mm, right. And taking a company public is like a pretty unique thing to be able to do in your career. So I thought it was kind of personally really exciting, even though it was a lot of work, but cool thing to have done, I think. Mm, right. Yeah. That is true, yeah. But the negatives is, of course, I mean, it's most of these smaller companies, there's not a lot of buying and selling going on on a daily basis. So very few people get to set the value of the company in a way, in a very public way. Now, that could be a bit of a downer sometimes when you feel like those people don't understand the value of what you're building. Mm. So you need to be able to push that aside and say, okay, this is 1% of the company changing hands is not the real value of the entire company. But it's still there for everyone to look at. And when you have like option programs for the staff, they will also look at that and say, okay, when is it going to be in a good place? And what about this month when the option program actually runs out? Is it going to be good or bad and so on? And you need to make sure that's not where the focus is for everyone on the staff. Yeah, that is definitely true. Hey, I have some CEO hot seat questions. These are <laughs> short and like not too painful. Are you are you ready? Uh, I think so. <laughs> so when should a games company start defining its mission, vision, and core values? When you start recruiting beyond the founder group, it's good to be able to kind of relay that to people before they join. This is what we're trying to build here. This is where we're heading and so on. 
as long as you're just the, the small founding team, of course, everyone knows what it's all about. And it's usually about one single game. If you're a games company, it's also about survival. Mm. And, but later on, it gets more complex and people will join for other reasons because you joined because you f- wanted to found a company. But they joined because they want to join something that they understand or they want to be part of. But I think what's been a, like a revelation to me is that it's okay that vision and mission can change over time. We were a bit intimidated by like trying to nail that down many years ago. What's the vision for the company? Because it's something that should be very long-term. And then you can get stuck in doing something that's too fluffy just to make sure it can be true forever. And I think it's good to think that the vision and mission can actually change over time. You can, a year or two down the line, you can have another sit down and figure out, is is this still the vision that makes most sense for us and so on? Mm. Yeah, it's kind of the culture of the company changes when you grow. It's kind of inevitable where there's more connections between people and that creates a bit of a, a nuance that wasn't there when you had 10 people. So Yeah, for sure. And you learn as well. Like it's like agile product development. Like it doesn't make sense to make a two-year plan for a product mm. because you know much more in three months what you should do three months from then. It's the same thing with the company. I don't think you should kind of make it everything the perfect plan for the next five years because you will know more in a year and then you should update your plan and same thing with the culture. Like if you hire 10 more people, you need to figure out who are we now. Mm. Otherwise, True. you won't be able to benefit from all these new joiners. How should gaming companies think and have discussion about player needs, basically the customer's need and addressing those needs? I think that's super exciting part of the business to understand why people are actually playing your games. Because it's so easy to get into just looking at data. Um, so we, I think you know Graham McAllister as well? Yes. Um, I think he's a really interesting guy. And we worked together with him f- a number of times now to get a kind of better framework on how to think about kind of self-determination theory and what's the psychological drivers behind why people are doing what they're doing and what kind of needs are we trying to satisfy with our games. And going away from thinking about, okay, this is the demographics we're targeting, like females 30 to 50 in the US. You can't do much with that. But you think, what are we trying to solve here? That's a much more interesting question. Yeah. So, and then, of course, like practically, I think it's great to like play test cloud or even better having kind of real people in the studio playing the games and you can look at them and talk to them and so on. Just takes a little bit more effort to, to make that happen. But I, Playtesting, kind of using Playtest Cloud, that's something we do a lot in all stages of game development. And I think that's always valuable. Celebrating with the team, kind of like what are the moments that you felt were meaningful points in time to have a celebration? I think we have different celebrations for an individual team and for the entire company. So I think teams need to celebrate kind of big milestones going into alpha launch or into soft launch and so on. But getting full out of a soft launch and into global, that's where we kind of celebrate the entire company, what kind of what we've achieved together. And then we have kind of two times a year, we get everyone in the company together. Then you can always think about 
milestones and things we can celebrate together. I think we're lousy at doing that in the early days, but becoming better and better at actually realizing that what we do is uh, pretty amazing in the sense of the competition you're up against and that you're still able to win. I, I think that's, that's pretty cool. Yeah. I'm constantly thinking about like celebrating kind of like when you didn't, you know, when you're killing a game, having that mm-hmm. supercell moment of <laughs> kill the game <laughs> <Yeah>. and <laughs> you have the, the celebration. <laughs> it's so, so valuable to have that point which enables the reflection moment yeah. for yeah. the whole team together on like mm. what they did, what are the learnings, how do we, mm. you know, it's the same thing with the thing that you're going to have another company Well, you're going to have another game coming out, but yes. it's like, it's a process of reflecting and learning. So Yeah. I think we, we do, of course, kind of post-mortems on, and trying to understand why things don't work out, but we haven't adopted the drink champagne and celebrate because I think <laughs> people are truly sad when they need to cancel things. So I don't, I don't know. I mean, you, you've been at Supercell. Maybe that's actually real, but it sounds a bit too good to be true that you would be able to celebrate that. I think the company should encourage failure if you learn from it, but the mm. champagne thing I don't, is too much for me, at least. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess if you like champagne, why not? <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. You know, more think about the team. Like They don't feel very good at that point in time. So... Yeah, yeah, it's kind of creating the right kind of environment. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So you were talking a lot about the board. How do you get the most out of your board meetings? Yeah, I think that's been a kind of learning experience as well. I think when we first got kind of external members on the board, I got into more of reporting mode, I think. Felt really important that they would understand the business and understand that we were doing well and that they invested in a company that was valuable. Um, but after a while, you get out of that kind of initial get to know each other period. I think you should expect the board members to have read all the material and talk very little about pastime, mm. speak more about what's going on in the future, what you're struggling with, where you can seek advice. Then we also try to find a cadence where you have like. We have a yearly strategy day. And I think that's been the most valuable thing to me when I can have a few weeks of preparation together with the management team and really take time to think long-term and think through everything we're up to and then go to the board and present. This is the strategy for the next three years and this is the next 12 months plan and so on. And just having them there, have a forum where you need to do this, I think is valuable in itself. Mm. You can easily end up reporting too much if you don't control yourself i think yeah yeah in a sense like letting the board speak and you're the listener yeah that would be the best if you can get to that place for sure do you have any any thoughts yourself on how do you do that i think it's a evolving process of kind of like having the right people on the board and yes it so much matters like what is their like value add there on the board like skill sets that they're adding to the team so mm-hmm. yeah going from there it's then it goes into like the topic topics that you want to cover really and then then trying to let them talk <laughs> as much as possible yeah. yeah yeah i have a couple of final questions for you man what is mm-hmm. your favorite book and why yeah i thought about that because i heard you ask that to, to previous people on the podcast as well i think it's a good question i thought back in time like what's 
impacted me most, maybe. I don't know if these are the best books, but um, Grapes of Wrath is a book by John Steinbeck mm. that I read in my early teens, I think. It's a kind of about how poor or how badly society can turn if you're not alert. It's like the US during the Depression and how the workers get abused by the employers and so on. And, and uh, just started a lot of thoughts in my mind on how society should work and should not work. Mm. Really good. I think you can read basically anything by, by John Steinbeck and it's going to be good. Also, 1984 by George Orwell was also this kind of wow moments. And then it's really close to reality now. <laughs> it looks like, yeah. I think China 2020 is worse even than George mm. Orwell 1980. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. all the technology is available and then you can go really crazy. Yeah. But I think on a professional level, it's uh, definitely Creativity Inc. It's uh, the Ed Catmull book. We, we use that a lot when we thought about how we want to work with our teams and how you can work with creativity and have a lot of autonomy in, in the creative process and so on. Um, and The Hard Thing About Hard Things is probably my favorite business book. Ben Horowitz's book. I uh, actually read it again or listened to it the, this time around, maybe six months ago. And uh, I mean, it's really good. Even better now when I also IPO'd a company. And there was <laughs> so much stuff in the story <laughs> that I could just relate to now. And like, yes. Yeah, it's it great just making these super sharp observations and how he concretely addressed a number of really difficult problems. Yeah, it is the CEO go-to book, really. Yeah, uh, it's amazing. Do you have a, a story that has shaped you in how you approach your work today? One thing that had a lot of impact on how kind of our culture and how we work at MAG is when we shipped uh, our third game, I think it was, was called Russell Adventure. Kind of, It's really great-looking single-player experience with the Russell mechanics, but more kind of a Russell meets Candy Crush Saga kind of game. Mm. Looked great. The, we got tons of love from Apple and Google and so on, but the team was exhausted when they had launched the game. And also, I think some of the things weren't as fun as we thought they would be. And I think the team didn't get to impact the product as much as they should. And uh, I think that was a turning point for us when we decided, okay, let's just try to create as flat a hierarchy as we can and make sure the teams really can own and impact their product instead of us controlling what's being done and setting dates and so on. Mm-hmm. And I think that was a defining moment for how we work. We don't want that to happen again. Put the teams in the driver's seat more than the founders. That's awesome, yeah. The kind of realization as well for me has been happening a lot. Like I tried to figure out this... I don't need to ship always the perfect thing. That there's mm. everything works as a service nowadays. So yeah. you can you can go back and iterate. And there's billions of customers out there. It's that's a really good point. I mean, to have teams also feel less intimidated and just move, mm. move on with things, and then you will have so much time and as you say, tons and tons of audience to go through over years. Mm, yeah. It's not that big a deal if a few hundred thousand play a product that's not perfect. You will, yeah. you will learn. I think like from a workload perspective, I decided to do my work 
at the office and not work from home a few years ago. And I think that was a huge win because before it was like, as soon as I didn't have anything else to do, I started working. If you have a family, that's not great. So better to work slightly longer days in the office and just leave work at work if you can. At least for me, that's been much better. Mm. Yeah, I can relate to that. It's I'm trying to figure out like what would be the best hobby for me to kind of like counterbalance the, you know, filling up the time with work, kind of that yeah. kind of drive. Mm. Yeah. It's not easy. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I think if, if you start companies and so on, that's a big part of your life and you actually enjoy it a lot. Yeah. So if you were kind of single, had no interests and no friends, you could easily fill up 100 hours a week with work and it would still feel meaningful and probably fun. Mm. But then when you look back, probably it would look pretty empty and you will feel that you actually missed out on a lot of things. Yeah. So, Having a family, I think, is an awesome balance to work, for example. Yeah, it is. Hey, Daniel, thanks a lot for coming on the show. As the last question, where can people reach out to you if they have questions regarding entrepreneurship, running a games company, stuff like that? I think LinkedIn is the easiest one. And probably mentioned that they heard something on this podcast because I get a lot of stuff on LinkedIn <laughs> that I don't respond to. If I <laughs> Me too. <laughs> respond. But email doesn't work at all. It's just too much stuff coming in email-wise. But LinkedIn, definitely, I will respond if someone say that they have listened to this. Sounds good, man. Hey, thanks so much for the time. Have a good day there in Stockholm. You too. Take care. Good talking. Bye-bye. Thanks again, Daniel, for coming on the show. Have you checked out Elite Game Developers' online courses? We have a few out there already. If you go to courses.elitegamedevelopers.com, you'll see our premium and our free courses there. Take a look at the free ones so that you'll get this kind of feeling of what we're trying to do here at Elite Game Developers. Thanks again, guys. See you next time. Bye-bye.